everybody to another episode of what's still called the Untitled Jeff Gluck Podcast. But this week, it's the Untitled Jeff Gluck and Matt Weaver Podcast because finally, Matt Weaver, you're joining me on the podcast. How are you, Matt? Well, this is the Great American Untitled Jeff Gluck Podcast. The Great American Untitled Jeff Gluck Podcast. That's a, that's a mouthful, but I like it. I like it. We, we just saw the Great American Race. Uh, kind of long. For, one, for starters, it's late at night here at Daytona. I'm not sure I expected it to go on that long. Maybe I should have after the Xfinity race. But, wow, what what's your first impressions of what we just saw? My first impression is that I feel like sometimes as writers, we're guilty of uh, probably exaggerating the truth sometimes. You know, when you see a great finish or you see a great race or a, a bad race or whatever the case is, it's always the best or it's the worst or... In this case, I feel like we literally saw everything there is possibly to see in a single race. I mean, you had, you know, the massive amount of carnage. You had the guys running out of fuel on the last lap. You had a dramatic battle for the lead. You really had a lot of everything. I mean, when the guys weren't crashing, the racing was captivating because they were kind of dangling their feet over the edge so much and then falling off. And so it made for for fun racing, but then there was just so much carnage. There really was a lot of carnage, and I think that took away from the racing for me. I thought it was very herky-jerky. It was tough to get any sort of a rhythm. You know what I mean? Like, just when they'd get going, there'd be another crash. You'd be like, oh, my God, can they not just race for a little bit? But a few of us went and talked to Steve O'Donnell afterwards and kind of brought that up to him. And he said, well, listen, you know, a few years ago, you might have been been here asking me, saying, well, how come it was all single file and nobody raced? And really, you didn't see much single file until the last few laps, which is like the opposite of what you would think, which is just so hard to wrap your head around. I was talking to Logano on pit road. He was just floored. Like, he just could not understand why they got he, – he called it being too, way too conservative. He said drivers were, quote, scared um, to do anything at the end. And – so I guess there's that side of it, that, that it wasn't single file. But to me, it just was like, is this the best show that NASCAR has to offer? I mean, it was it was a little bit disjointed. Yeah. Look, I, I have some really unpopular polarizing opinions about plate racing in general. I know you do, too, especially last year. You wrote some pretty um, honest pieces I'm plate racing's biggest fan, Matt. What are you talking about? Oh, me too. We are. Uh, this is opposite day, apparently. I don't. I don't. I don't know. I don't know what the answer here is. To me, I come from a traditional racing family, short track, dirt track. I have this fundamental idea of what racing is, and then you know, four times a year we come to Daytona and Talladega, and it's a show. I'm just not necessarily sure that it's a race, and yet a a decent majority of the fan base uh, they enjoy this I think they enjoy the parody they enjoy the close finish they enjoy the unpredictability and if that means they have to sacrifice some degree of of traditional racing elements or something that just resembles a legit sport uh, they're willing to make that sacrifice in the name of just the wackiness that can happen at Daytona Matt um, a couple times throughout the weekend you tweeted something you tweeted it and then you like retweeted it again something along the lines of i'm having trouble taking daytona seriously or something like that and it is sort of interesting because you're you're talking i I think you're right people love the aspects of it that you talked about 
but it is at times sort of like LOL Daytona. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, sort of like, oh my gosh, are you serious right now? Like, is that what you're getting at with those tweets? Yeah, basically. I mean, look, someone brought up on Twitter that, you know, how can you basically make fun of Daytona when it's your Twitter profile picture or the, the banner picture? And to me, I feel like the venue has so much history, so much respect, so much um, wonderful moments that we can all remember. And a lot of it was based on something that resembles real racing. And I, I guess whenever they first started to put on the restrictor plates, it changed the dynamic. So to me, what we do now at Daytona doesn't resemble a large majority of what we used to do at Daytona. And, you know, we talk about how Daytona is our, our Super Bowl. It is the, the biggest race, the best race, the most exciting race. It's not a race anymore. I mean, tonight's race specifically um, shows you that. I mean, these guys weren't racing. Kurt Busch said it himself, the Daytona 500 is about survival. That's that's not that's not racing. That's a that's a demolition derby. And to me that's not what our biggest race should be about. It should reflect the entirety of the season and it's just something completely random and different. I I got to agree with you about the survival aspect of it because I think that's why nobody really did anything at the end and why Logano was so confused about what what happened because if you look at the guys who made it to the finish, they survived a bunch of carnage, right? A lot of them with wrecked cars still. Um, I was on pit road and Matt DiBenedetto pulls up ninth place. Go fast racing, ninth, ninth place. And he had some crew and team and family like surrounding the car immediately and they literally cheered for him and clapped and yelled as he got out of the car. And he's just like, hey, yeah. I mean, he was obviously thrilled. Ninth place, Daytona 500. But he kind of, I asked him how it compared to Bristol um, it was sixth place last year. And he said, well, that was more racing. This was more survival. And I think the guys, if you look at the guys in, in the top five who finished, I mean, A.J. Allmendinger, Eric Almarola, Paul Menard, Michael Waltrip, um, were they really going to pull out and make some crazy move and give up a great finish and possibly risk going to the back? I mean, they saw other people try it and go to the back. I mean, if you're pretty much in line for a top five and you would have to force it to try something else. I'm sure that if they had the opportunity, they would have made a move. If the opportunity presented itself like, oh, I can go for the win. But other than that, why do anything? They've survived that long. Why not just make it to the end? You're, you're that close to a great finish, you know? At a certain point, don't you have like PTSD once you get down to the final 10 laps because you've been you've been thrown through the ringer so many times that you don't want to be that guy that, that causes the next big one, especially if you don't think that you have the run that you need to to make a winning move. I mean, if you're fifth place on back, you're single file at that point. I think there was just this mentality of, let's just go home. <laughs> we, we have tore up enough race cars. It has been a long day, and I think a lot of guys just wanted to see it to the finish. Matt, let's talk about something that I think, you know, in the media in general, we, we talked as a big talked up as a big storyline and turned out to be sort of a non-factor, which was teams working together. We talked, we thought based on last year's 500 that when, when all the Gibbs cars teamed up together, that that would be someone, something similar. You know, maybe we'd see Hendrick do it, Stuart Haas, maybe the Penske guys would stick together all day, team up with Harvick. And they really never got a chance because they tried doing different pit strategy to start off and that totally like backfired on them they're like all right cool we got these stages now 
let's play like a road course. We know these cautions are coming. You know, it's going to be a certain thing. We, we can totally do this awesome strategy. Then guys are speeding. They're overshooting their pit stall. They're, you know, doing all sorts of stuff. They get caught laps down twice, I think, for the Gibbs cars. Totally messes their whole day up. Get caught in wrecks and all the thing. They got they got separated. I mean, why in general do you think that the the team stuff just didn't work? Well, for one, I feel like there's only one manufacturer who can make that work, and that's TRD Toyota, because their teams are so closely tied together. I mean, we talk all the time about how Furniture Row is like this extension of of Joe Gibbs Racing. And ever since Stuart Haas Racing moved over to Ford, they said, you know, we're not like those guys are. We're not tied together. We're two rival teams. So you're really not going to see them work with Team Penske or Roush. And, you know, the Hendrick guys, those are four cars. So to make that work, you really need, like, this blockade of six or seven cars. And Toyota is the only group that can do that. And they were unable to do it today because of all the reasons that you mentioned, the pit road issues, uh, the crash when, when Kyle Busch cut a tire, took out some of his teammates. And so I think the only group that could have done that were not in contention. What did you think of Kyle Busch's comments toward Goodyear? I, You know, there's been times over the years where Kyle um, just rips people, rips TRD, rips Goodyear, what, against his own interest, because obviously um, – I mean, Goodyear's not going to give him bad tires or something like that, but they're not going to, like, go out of their way to help him or something. I mean, obviously they'll act professional about it and things like that, but they can't be thrilled. That's The reason they're in the sport is to sell tires, and when you go on national TV and say Goodyear tires aren't very good at keeping air in them and you tell reporters in the garage, according to ESPN and Yahoo, I wasn't there, but he said that Goodyear tires suck, um... I'm sure they're not very happy about that. I talked to Greg Stucker, who is the um, the director of racing tires there, tire sales, and he he acknowledged that yeah, you know, it's not ideal basically. But um, he said that they weren't even sure that it was a flat tire, um, that the tire might have gone flat after from the damage. So uh, they're gonna have to go back and look at it closer, but. Kyle obviously felt very strongly about it. If you were a driver, you, you've driven in the past, you know, can you see yourself in that position? Would you have made those kind of comments? I feel so conflicted when it comes to a story like this because on one hand, we like having access to our athletes in the heat of the moment as soon as they get out of the car when they're either really happy or they're really upset. And in the case of Kyle Busch, he's in the moment. He is upset about his result the fact that he's not going to win the Daytona 500 and the easy target was Goodyear. I think sometimes if we could find a way to force drivers to go into the hauler, change out, and have mandated media time, I think it would probably change their opinions a little bit. Yeah, it would make them more muted. It might take away some of that that fire, but I think you're, you're probably going to get a lot more rational, reasonable. How many times have we seen it? A driver says something controversial on one Sunday, we get to the track on Friday, and we ask them to follow up, and they say, you know, I was I was frustrated. I didn't really think that all the way through, or I didn't have all the information. But do you think that Kyle Busch regrets his comments? Because I, I don't, honestly. Not right now, but I think if, if you give him a week, I, and he gets the evidence that Goodyear suggested was the reality. I'm not a, a tire uh, engineer, so I don't know, but it does seem like there was some sort of contact on the tire that probably led to that. 
facts are facts. And I know from spending a, a lifetime in racing that tires are really hard to make work for racing. I mean, this is like this mathematic formula that's constantly changing. The aerodynamics are changing. Track conditions are changing. It's really hard to figure out. And I think that Goodyear probably has one of the most thankless jobs in all of motorsports, creating tires for NASCAR. And um, that's not defending them or choosing their side. But I think Kyle probably does not have all the information, at least whenever he went on that rant. And I would like to think that being a racer himself, that Kyle probably would recognize that maybe it was a bit of a knee-jerk reaction. You know, you brought up something interesting about the heat of the moment stuff, and this is sort of an inside baseball media type thing. But So there's a new policy, right, where if the drivers go to the garage or the five-minute clock expires or whatever, if they're out of the race because of crash damage, they have to go to the care center. So Kyle wrecks out along with Junior, and I'm like, okay, where are they going to be? So I go to the care center. Kyle ends up driving back to the garage. He gets out of the car. He talks to TV, radio, and the reporters at his garage stall. He goes to the care center for the mandated trip, doesn't talk, gets on a golf cart, leaves. There's a bunch of media there. He's like, I already talked. You know, he's done. So, you know, if, if NASCAR can figure out this policy a little bit more, I do think that this could sort of this new care center policy could do sort of do exactly what you're saying. It could give enough of a buffer because like when Dale Jr. later came to the garage, they wouldn't let him talk. Or Hendrick said, no, he's going to talk at the care center. He only wants to do this once. So they put him on a golf cart, uh, like a medical golf cart. We all went there. And then a few minutes later, he comes out, talks, you know. So that could be enough of a cool down period, you know, 10 minutes or whatever. If like if Kyle had gone to the care center first, maybe the comment to your point doesn't happen or maybe he's a little bit more calmed down. But we'll just we'll just have to see how that works out. I mean, then you had drivers after the race who, you know, didn't talk. Chase Elliott, Martin Truex Jr. But then then they both tweeted later. Oh, well, nobody was at our cars, you know, so it's it's sort of a evolving work in progress, you know. Yeah, there's so many different angles to this particular storyline. I mean, again, you said it's inside baseball, uh, but there's no standard for where drivers are supposed to be after an incident or after the race. And I think sometimes we get flack as writers for not having the entirety of a story. And it's not easy on us to get that either. Um, As for Kyle and the whole Goodyear thing, he's probably not the right example as far as a guy that might calm down a little bit. (laughs) You're like, uh, I'm thinking somebody else. Yeah, but I think a large majority of the garage, if they had that cool down moment, they would probably be a little bit more reasonable. And I think that's more in line with the rest of the sporting world, too. I mean, I've I've covered some uh, NFL games, some college basketball games, and the protocol there is the athletes go into the locker room, they shower, change clothes, then they come out, and that's when you talk to them. And you still got really good quotes. You still got really candid interviews. Sometimes you got better interviews because guys were able to kind of process the moment and, and, and be able to fully be aware of what they just experienced. And you don't have that when you're still in the euphoria and you still have the adrenaline flowing. So there's there's kind of pros and cons to both. Matt, I got to be honest. And this is sort of, again, from a media standpoint, but I don't think that Kurt Busch's victory in the Daytona 500 is going to do that much for NASCAR nationally outside the sport. I think that 
you know, on the on the morning shows and things like that. They'll say, wow, crazy wreck fest, demolition derby, Daytona 500, blah, blah, blah. They'll show all the wrecks and they'll say, and Kurt Busch won in the end. And they might not even show him winning. They might just say, and ultimately your winner was Kurt Busch. And they just might show wreck after wreck in the, in the 15 seconds they devote to NASCAR or something. So I don't know that this is this type of story that gives NASCAR a ton of momentum coming out of this. Am I wrong? Do you agree? No, I'm with you. Um, the only thing that I can kind of hold on to that maybe some fans will latch on to is the new format. You know, Monster Energy says they want to make racing fun and they want to make it exciting and raw. There was a lot of rawness <laughs> to this race, and it's not indicative of what we're going to see for the rest of the year. But yeah, to your point, Kurt Busch isn't a guy that moves the needle. Great race car driver. Might be one of the most top 10, most talented wheelmen in the recent history of motorsports. Not only NASCAR. You look at what he did at Indianapolis, the Indy 500. But as far as being a a character, a, a personality that kind of has that transcendent you know, mass appeal, Kurt Busch ain't the guy. Yeah. You mentioned the stages, and I wanted to touch on that because some people on Twitter were blaming the stages for all the wrecks, and, and they were saying, well, this is why it's been such a, a crash-filled weekend. I personally don't really see that that much. I feel like maybe they got a little bit scrambled at, you know, at the end of one of the stages and they started going for it a little bit more. But overall, I didn't really get the sense that that was contributing to the wrecks. The wrecks were just happening middle in the middle of the stages. I didn't I mean, what do you what do you think? No, we had one crash in the second segment and then a crash began the third segment. So they weren't racing for anything on the, the second lap of, of segment three. Um, sometimes you can't explain it. I mean, you've, you've heard drivers say that. Sometimes it's just something in the air, and it's just the way guys are racing. I do think this, the stages were a part of it. I think the weather was very warm. All weekend it was fairly warm. So it was a very loose track, tough racing conditions. Um, young drivers across the board. I know there were some veterans that made some mistakes too, but I think sometimes you race the way you're being raced. And if you've got rookies around you who are being aggressive, who feel like they have something to prove, you're going to react accordingly. And I think we saw that in trucks, Xfinity, and Cup. Um, another aspect of the new rules is this five-minute clock thing, and it got more attention today. I've made my feelings pretty well known on this already. If you're listening to the podcast I'm assuming that you may have seen my rant um, that I posted on jeffgluck.com a couple nights ago during the truck race, and and maybe I don't need to rehash it here, but essentially I think that it's a perfectly fine rule. I don't have any problem with it, and I feel like the people that are complaining about it, I, I'm not sure why because it's just like the cars, if you can't you know complete repairs in five minutes, they don't need to be on the track anyway. But... Matt, you're a real racer, and uh, unlike myself, I have no problem admitting that. You're, you actually have done it and things like that. So I'm curious, you know, what's your take on the whole five-minute clock thing? Do you, do you like this new rule, or are you sort of hoping for some tweaks? I largely really like it. Um, I would make one minor tweak. Instead of five minutes from line to line on pit road, five minutes in the box. Because we call it a five-minute rule, but at a place like Daytona, where you're getting the most damage, and you need the car to be as little damage as possible, 
um, you're only you only get four minutes. It's a long pit road, so you spend half a minute getting to your box, half a minute leaving. It's basically a four minute clock. So to me, I think it should be once you get in the box, five minutes. But I love the rule. You know, a car that's damaged, realistically beyond repair, like Dale Jr.'s was today, uh, like Kyle Busch's was today. That's not going to contend for the win. And I know we had a bunch of cars out there that looked like they ran Martinsville or Bristol. But by off, by large, more often than not, you need cars that are aerodynamically secure to win these races. And they would get in the way. And so I don't think they add anything to the show. NASCAR has taken away points from 36 to 40th. You all get one point. So I think once you put all that together, it's good. And I don't know why fans are basically sticking up for the right to watch a car a second off the pace uh, that has its fenders tore off because there is zero absolutely zero entertainment value in watching a modified go out there to compete with cup cars yeah i agree and by the way dale jr said uh after the care center yeah we could have fixed it you know we could have put a new fender on it you know knock the toe back out whatever but god i I didn't want to go out there and race i'm just happy to leave i don't want to get back in that thing you kidding me you know, that kind of thing. So um, I think it's a good rule overall, you know. Like how many times have we heard drivers go out there and, you know, once the race is over, they're mad. They feel like, you know, we didn't learn anything today. I have no idea why we were out there. We were just racing for points and we were hoping that somebody would crash after us. That's the only reason they're out there. They're, no one's having fun. There, there are no sponsorship benefits. If it's not fun, if it doesn't have any purpose, get rid of it. You don't think that's drama? I think it's no drama, <laughs> unless it's a scenario like Morgan Shepard wrecking Joey Logano at New Hampshire, <laughs> but but no. And that's not the kind of drama NASCAR wants. 80-year-old man or whatever <laughs> gets in the way. Yeah, so listen, aside from this weekend, which is an anomaly in so many ways, it's an anomaly with the stages, with the strategy, with the type of racing, with the finishing order. Now we're going to move on to Atlanta. I'm very much looking forward to that because number one, it's the last race on that great pavement, the worn out pavement. The lower, lower downforce package is going to be fantastic there. I think it's going to put on a very good show. And quite frankly, I'm anxious to see who really is good this year because I don't think we know. I don't think we have any idea. You know, preseason testing, they tested at phoenix for instance and how do you really know anything from phoenix whether whether that's going to carry over the year so finally we're going to get a sense on friday when they hit track the track for practice what's going to happen what are you looking forward to about atlanta well before i address atlanta i've got to say during your entire intro to that question i got really distracted i realized you're wearing a happy daytona day hat it took you that long to realize this it sure did. For a second, I thought it was a, a JeffGluck.com hat, which I wanted one. And then I read that it said Happy Daytona Day. I do. I have a So right before the race started, um, Fox Sports PR came up to me. And, you know, I was, I've was i been very anti-Daytona Day with the commercials. And they said, we have a present for you, Jeff. And I'm like, oh, really? Oh, boy, this is going to be good. And they took out this quite lovely um, Daytona Day hat that says right across the top, it's it's gray it looks like to be very high quality hat and it says <laughs> happy daytona day that's all it says on the hat so you know i'm like you know what? i'm gonna wear this <laughs> i'm gonna wear this hat and then i thought i'm a ginger it's florida i get burned 
Um, I always tell you, Matt, like I'm your dad or something to wear your sunblock because you always try to just like get a tan. And I'm like, dude, you're getting burned. And so I thought I'll set a good example for Matt Weaver and I'll wear a hat all day. So I've been wearing this hat all around. I wore it through driver interviews afterwards <laughs> on pit road. <laughs> I mean, nobody really said anything to you, honestly. Well, to my point is, is there going to be some, some Jeff Gluck.com swag? I mean, I probably need a logo first. I've been just so busy trying to get stuff, you know, started up, but I did, I don't know if you know this, I showed up at the tweet up today and two people, Scott and Terry Wilfong, um, they had made shirts, t-shirts, and they had my picture on them and they said, we're Jeff Gluck's boss, jeffgluck.com. And like when I showed up at the tweet up, people had been sort of behind them and then they like separated because all the people that tweet up were sort of in on it or something. And it was like a surprise party that I didn't want. <laughs> it, was very, it was very embarrassing. Um, you know, one of my colleagues who I'll, I'll leave unnamed for now said later, well, Jeff, this is what you signed up for. You know, I'm like, this is, this is the price of independent journalism. You know, this is, uh, it's, it's just kind of embarrassing. I mean, I'm grateful that people are showing so much support, but I just feel kind of, I'm not like that kind of guy, you know what I mean? Well, I'll say Scott and Terry are, are good people. They're they're two of my favorites as well. So you could have much worse bosses than the NASCAR community. That's true. And by the way, since we're on this tangent, so okay, so Scott and Terry Wilfong, they would if anybody's ever seen, they used to be Carl's crew. They would go to races and they would have a sign, hashtag Carl's crew or whatever. And Carl Edwards was very good to them. He would always go out of their way, out of his way, you know, qualifying or whatever practice to come over and say hi, shake their hands, ask them how, how they were doing. So they're very loyal fans. And after Carl retired, they were upset and they contacted me and said, listen, we're going to send out a tweet and say our fandom is now up for grabs and we want to, we we're looking for a driver to be new fans. So um, they sent out a tweet. I retweeted them. And I would have thought that several drivers would reach out and say, hey, well, yeah, we see this tweet. We'd love fans. You know, even low-level cup drivers or whatever. Guess how many drivers reached out? Don't tell me none. One. Blake Cook reached out. And so they accepted his offer. They are now Cook's crew with a K. And they're very, they're very happy. They had a great experience. They met Blake for the first time at Daytona this weekend. He came over to the fence several times during practice to talk to them. He gave him a shout out at his at his appearance on the midway. This is what they told me, and they gave them crew members gave them team hats from College Racing. So it's very nice. But what's wrong with the sport when NASCAR drivers have an opportunity to try to get new fans, loyal loyal fans, and don't what like what's going on? We talk about it all the time that the sport has a rich tradition, a history of being really fan-friendly, being really engagement-centric. And I feel like we have gotten away from that a little bit. I know drivers say all the time that when they're walking through the garage, not necessarily the best time to talk to them. But you hear more and more now stories to where fans feel slighted or, fa or fans feel like they didn't get their money's worth. And, and the money's going up. I mean, the ticket prices for this race was incredible. We, we saw the reports. And I do think that's something that internally... That's what the drivers need to sit down and figure out what opportunities to engage with fans right now are we missing and how can we do a better job of that because if we don't create new fans, 
or, or fans who are on the fence looking for a new driver, you know, that that's all of our lifeblood that goes away. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, every time I think about fandom, um, I have to go to EDM, right? Because that's, I, I'm not, my sports fandom isn't at the same level. Having worked in it, it's, it's just sort of like um, a standard thing to me. And I don't look at these guys as anything sort of special, I guess. I, I that doesn't sound right, but you know what I'm trying to get at. But, you know, EDM artists, that's my favorite type of music. I'm huge fans. And I understand, like, when I tweet some of these people, I it's it's very important to me to get validation or if they like one of my tweets to them saying I love this new song and I get a like from them it's cool it's really cool um one of my favorite artists is Audion um this guy named Audion and he you know I, I will tag him in some tweets and um so today on the way into Daytona I was playing his music I put a snapchat of it and I ended up tweeting it out and like, you know, I'm listening to this audience song on the way in Daytona, whatever, right? So I end up, I was in the driver's meeting, I look at my thing, he sent me a direct message. Hey man, so awesome, thanks so much, enjoy the race today, really appreciate you spreading the, spreading the word or whatever. I'm like, that's awesome, and that's the kind of appreciation that you want as a fan of whatever, you know, whether it's an actor, musician, athlete, whatever, and I really hope that NASCAR drivers don't get away from that because I think that's in some ways, it's not even autographs, it's not pictures. They don't want, they just want appreciation. You know what I mean? They want interaction. Uh, my favorite story is I brought a friend of mine to the IndyCar race at Barber four years ago. It was a rain delay. So all the drivers are either in their haulers, their transport rather. And I'm walking down the paddock with my friend and we see a driver, who I'll name in just a second, but the driver randomly pulls my buddy underneath the, the tarp because he was standing in the rain. He says, get out of the rain. Come come, come hang out for a second. And so... And he had no idea who this person was or anything? He had no idea who this driver was because he had never been to... No, but I mean, the driver didn't know your friend or... no, Like, yeah, okay. No, he had no idea who I was. This was five years ago before I was really in the sport. Um, so my buddy and this driver strikes up a conversation and um, basically my friend eventually said so so who are you what do you do with the team and he's like oh my name is Graham I drive the car it was Graham Rahal who just pulled a fan who was wandering lost in the rain underneath his tent just to say hi and to keep him dry no kidding that's crazy can you imagine that happening really sadly in a NASCAR race no it doesn't it doesn't at all I mean you know if, if there's rain, drivers are, are running back to their multi-million dollar motorhomes and hiding in them until they have to come back out. You rarely see drivers in the garage, really, even on race morning. Um, I There was a, a woman who won um, a ticket from Jim Cassidy. He had had a contest, and he ended up giving her a hot pass, and she was at the tweet up, so she ended up walking in with me. She's a longtime Twitter follower. I've known her for probably seven or eight years now. And I was trying to tell her, you know, where to go in the garage or whatever. And um, I was like, yeah, by the way, you're probably not going to see any drivers because they're going to go from their motorhome lot. Now, at, at that point, it was mid-morning, their motorhome lot to the driver's meeting, which was outside the garage this year. And then they're going to get on their cart and they're going to go back to their motorhome lot. And they're going to stay in their motorhome until they the very last second that they have to come out for driver intros and they're just not going to interact. You know, they're not going to sign autographs. They're not going to mingle. And 
you know, you go to something like NHRA or even IndyCar, where you've been to a lot of more IndyCar than I have, and it, I don't think that's the case there. No, no, certainly not an IndyCar. Uh, I've never been to NHRA, but I think IndyCar drivers have all told me, you know, individually, that this is something that's very important to them. You know, this isn't me trying to stir up a, a mini controversy, but many of these IndyCar drivers have told me we recognize that we're in competition with NASCAR and that NASCAR drivers don't provide the access that they used to. So if we can provide them that sort of access, there's an opportunity there to draw them to, to their side. And I think NASCAR fans should probably demand that sort of access from their drivers too because, you know, the sport is not necessarily in the best of shape right now. And we, we've seen a lot of stories this month talking about where the industry is. And I think the drivers can do a lot to combat that perception by just being more visible, more more engaging more more friendly well and and let's be honest i mean the reason that indycar drivers are doing that kind of thing and being so visible is, is because their sport is a lot smaller fan base and the ratings are lower and and things like that and you know i i from what I've, the older writers tell me you know it, it used to be flip-flopped you used to be able to walk through nascar garage and you'd see the the drivers hanging out in the back of their hauler and you can just go up and talk to them and IndyCar was super hard because that was the dominant form of motorsport. I, I just hope that NASCAR drivers realize um, that they need to do more and step up more and be more fan friendly before it's too late, um, before they get to that IndyCar level, because certainly the sport is declining um, a little bit, as, as we've talked about. Now, you you brought up something about the leadership of the sport, and it just reminded me, because I wanted to go back and I know we're all over the place if you're listening to this, but this is what probably typical of us going to dinner or coffee, right? I mean, we're just bounce all over the place. Yeah, it's very much an ADD conversation. We're, you know, 90 a minute and all over the place. Yeah, so this is pretty normal for us. So you're pretty much just along for the ride at this point. But so Brian France gets up at the driver's meeting today. Weaver just palmed his face. And he's like, okay, I don't usually talk about competition, but... I wanted to tell you that blocking, if you're going to be blocking, don't come to NASCAR. Uh, you better hope there's a good Samaritan behind you because don't come to NASCAR. And I base, I think he was basically trying to say, if you block, you're, you're on your own. We don't want to hear your complaints. But it was odd for two reasons. Number one, there hasn't been any blocking controversies at all in speed weeks. Um, I don't think anybody's been upset about anything. Number two, the wrecks aren't even being caused by blocks, really. It's just ill-timed bump drafts or mistakes. The only block, really, that caused a wreck in all of Speed Weeks was in the clash for the lead with Denny and Brad. But what did you have any idea what he was talking about? No, and the only situation that I could draw from is the last lap of the clash, but that's racing. And it was kind of a, a professional block in the sense that it wasn't a a chop move. I mean, it was just a reaction to the guy behind you making a move. Uh, but what was strange to me, aside from the lack of cohesion or just the, I couldn't understand where he was trying to get at, was that it was a a breach of protocol and that that's not Brian France's role. By his own admission, he says that he usually does not come to the driver's meeting to dictate competition policy, but he felt compelled for whatever reason this morning to, to deliver an edict about blocking, which was out of nowhere because we have not had a blocking controversy at Daytona or Talladega in years. I just don't know what this guy, I don't, I don't know if he thought, 
oh, you know, like the Xfinity race was so long because there was the, all these wrecks were being caused by blocking. He just doesn't grasp the basics. But what was really striking to me is I mentioned that Steve O'Donnell spoke after the Daytona 500 and Jordan Bianchi from SB Nation asked him, you know, what was Brian trying to do there? And, and O'Donnell said, you know, I basically think he was trying to say this or whatever. And then Jordan said, well, did you have any heads up or was this pre-planned? And O'Donnell basically said, I don't know. You'll have to ask Brian. So essentially read between the lines, Steve O'Donnell, who's like the head of the competition had no idea that Brian France was going to get up. It wasn't like they talked about it and they're like, yeah, Brian, you should probably say something about this. Yeah. Oh yeah. That'd be a good idea. It was just, Brian's like goes rogue. That is exactly what the topic of conversation has been this week. That was the basis of the story in the Wall Street Journal that Brian has basically sold his shares as the leader of NASCAR but is still the CEO and chairman and makes decisions without consulting the rest of the family, uh, the rest of the leadership group. And again, if you read between the lines of O.D. Steve, this was another example of Brian just doing something on his own and usually not in spectacular fashion. I, we could talk for hours and hours, and I, I know we still have more work to do, so I'll let you go after this. But getting back to our, before you got distracted my, by my Daytona Day hat, what, what are your thoughts about going forward to Atlanta? There, there's a lot of different storylines coming up, up now. What are some that you're watching? You know, there's been a lot of, um, I don't want to say negativity, but just some skepticism amongst the NASCAR community on the rule changes, uh, the sponsorship, all that stuff. I'm really excited, really, and not not in the NASCAR Media Day excited sense. I'm genuinely excited for 2017. I love the low, low downforce package. To me, that's a little bit closer to, um, you know, some of our better racing packages from over the years. I still think these cars need to get unglued a little bit more, but we're getting there. I like stage-based racing. I think it's going to be a big benefit to the racing product, especially at, at mile and a halfs like Atlanta, Charlotte, Kansas, sometimes those races are the hardest to get through. NASCAR is now providing incentive for these teams to battle all the way through an event, and I think that's going to be fun in Cup, Xfinity, Trucks. Specifically when it comes to Atlanta, I love that surface. I hate that we're losing it. I'm going to enjoy it one more time. I think the racing is going to be awesome at Atlanta. And like you said earlier, we have no idea what to expect. There are so many changes. Toyota has a new you know, basically a new body work on its car that could change the dynamic of, of their competition package. Jimmy's going for eight. We've got great rookies in Suarez and, and Dylan and Jones. And, you know, uh, Chase Elliott's one more year into his career. I think this is going to be a fun season. Matt, last thing. I'm going to do my was it a good race poll again, and I'm not going to forget Daytona this time. So I'm going to ask about was the Daytona 500 a good race? What's your guess for the percentage of yes and no answers that will come out with the poll? This is really tough. It is. I'm trying to think of it too. That's why I asked you first. <laughs> I mean, and, and the reason this is tough because plate racing is so polarizing. I mean, it has its, its fan base that no matter what product it delivers, as long as you get pack racing and pack crashing, they're going to give it the thumbs up. I think you're going to be surprised, and I think you're going to see uh, a 60-40-ish split. Oh, God, you just stole my answer. 
Oh, I was going to say 60-40. Crap. All right. Well, you know what then? I'm going to say that some fans didn't like it. No, oh, you're right. A lot of people do like it, though. I don't know if they love the winner. There wasn't finished. All right. Uh, just calculating in my head. But people are in a good mood to start the season. So I'm, I'm going to say 65-35. How about that? Is that like the, the price is right, $1? Well, if that's the case, I'm going to say 61 Well done. Okay. On that note, Matt, thank you so much. Where can people um, follow all your work at Auto Week? You know, for the first time in my, my life, my professional writing life, it's just one answer. It's autoweek.com. I mean, you know, you followed my career and my life for the past near decade. It's been like a, a sponsor list of, of outlets. So the, the two best ways, autoweek.com, on Twitter, at Matt Weaver AW. All right. Sounds good. Well, I'm at Jeff Gluck from jeffgluck.com <laughs> and we'll talk to you next time on the untitled jeff gluck podcast with matt weaver <laughs> <laughs>